there, and welcome to the Prickly Things Podcast, the show where we are open and honest about everyday life in hopes to empower, motivate, and inspire you. So listen close, because we all love a good story. Welcome to another episode of our DACA series here at the Prickly Things Podcast. I am beyond excited and thankful to have you join me today. This is now episode six. That is crazy. It has been a full week since we launched this podcast and the support I've received so far has been incredible. We have listeners all over in Denver, Chicago, Nebraska, California, just to name a few locations and our community just keeps growing. So I cannot say thank you enough for your support. Today's episode is very special because I had the opportunity to connect with another dreamer just like myself. And yesterday on Instagram, I shared a little bit more information about DACA. Now, DACA is known as Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, and it is an immigration policy that allows people that were brought onto the United States as children the temporary right to live in the U.S. and be able to legally work under a work permit that must be renewed every two years. Anyone eligible for DACA must complete an extensive application every two years. We must undergo an extensive background check, and if we are approved, we are granted the temporary protection from deportation. Now, DACA is a huge part of my life as a dreamer, and today I share with you the story of Stephanie Baez Mendez. She joined me all the way from Tucson, Arizona, and decided to share with us a little bit about her story as a dreamer and as a DACA recipient. Stephanie, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to have you on and uh, welcoming you to this platform. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm, I'm really excited to share uh, my story with everyone to really kind of have people, uh, you know, have the space to ask questions, to hear other people's stories and to really try to connect because, you know, we've, we've kind of talked about it, you and I, not a lot of people necessarily know. And it's, it's such an odd thing to have to share. For example, we've met, but I don't think we've ever had this conversation or we've never really kind of said like, hey, I'm DACA, because it's not the first thing that you say to other people, obviously. Mm-hmm. No. And so it, it really allows for people like us to really feel safe in this space. Nice. And safe to be here, because I feel like a lot of our stories are very similar, whether, you know, we had the same interactions or, you know, the same upbringing are coming to America. I think there's a movie now coming, (laughs) coming to America. There's a movie like we should make our life a movie. (laughs) If that's a thing on TV right now, like this can possibly go into a movie. And, you know, I just hope that there's people out there that would want to listen and that, you know, feel that it's important to bring these conversations to light because Mm -hmm. they're tough to have and they're important because we're people. I feel like whoever is against immigration, and, you know, everyone that doesn't support the dreamers, they don't understand that we are people at the end of the day with hopes and dreams and aspirations. Mm-hmm. And we want to make sure that we create this common space for everyone to come on board and, and join us in this conversation. So what I wanted to start our conversation is, you know, definitely talk about your experience growing up in America. How was it explained to you that you were coming? First of all, where are you from? So I'm actually from Cananea, Sonora. So it's about a three hour drive from Tucson, which it's funny when people ask me that because it always blows my mind that it's so close because I grew up thinking that it was so far from my hometown. Like I grew up thinking, I think it might even be a two hour drive. I grew up thinking that I was hours or a day away And it wasn't until I got older that I was like, oh my God, like if I wanted to, I could just, I could just drive there. It's literally like the smallest town. I can still remember, like if I really think hard about it, I can still remember how to get from our house to my grandparents' house. Or I can remember like how to get to the store and where we would go and like all of these little things. Because I wasn't that, that young when we left. So how old were you? So I was eight. So this was back in 2002 and my brother was about to turn two. So my brother has like literally like no recollection or memories from being in Mexico. Yeah. He has like 
like nothing like for him it's just kind of like and you you would have gone to school there right I came in here when I was seven and I remember going kinder for a second I started third grade when I moved to the United States oh my god me too like that's literally when I when I came in I remember and I'm pretty sure that I started school late because my mom and I had already talked about where I was going to go to school and I said okay I'm ready and then she was like oh no never mind we're putting you in another one but I started in third grade which you know out of any city that we could have probably landed in we landed in Tucson and at times before I had DACA I probably was a little ungrateful that it was Tucson because I was like why so close to the border why can't well like why can't we move somewhere cold like like Colorado or Utah why can't we move somewhere cool like California but now that I'm older I realized that like we came to a place that my parents probably didn't know but it was comfortable like my dad had his brother here and we had people who spoke Spanish So it wasn't like my parents just came and they were like doomed to fend on themselves, but it was like a very comfortable spot for us to land in. And so, so I'm not mad now that we landed in Tucson. That's Um, good. Um, And it's, it takes time for you to realize, you know, and be grateful for the opportunities you've had because, you know, like you said, yeah, Tucson is not that cool. I don't know. I'm from Phoenix. I don't think it's cool. I'm just thinking. I'm kidding. But um, yeah, in our community, you kind of make yourself in a place where you're going to be comfortable. So you started third grade. Did you speak English? I honestly cannot remember. My boyfriend actually asked me this question like a couple days ago. And I know that I went to private school when I was in Mexico. Me too. Did you really? Oh my gosh. Look at, look at us being so fancy. I had uniforms. (laughs) Like if I can go back to that, we have pictures and I have my, we just pulled our pictures out too. (laughs) Really? I have pictures with like a rebelde type of uniform, you know, like with the skirts and the plaid and like the corbatas. Like, yeah. Okay. I did not wear corbatas, but neither did the boys, I think. You know what? My mom used to make my uniforms when I was little because my mom's a seamstress. Mm-hmm. And so she she would make all of my all of my uniforms because the reason that, that I was in private school. I mean, I know that I went to like public public school for like pre-K kinder. I went to public school and then my mom moved me into the private school and I ended up getting a scholarship. I think because I was smart. I don't know. I'm hoping that I've always told myself that it was because I was smart and that's why, but, but yeah. Look at you. (laughs) Oh my God. We're going to have to share that picture on our Instagram page so everyone can see, but I'll share mine too. I'll find mine and I'll share mine too. But I remember going to school. I was in first, second, third grade. Well, first, second, because I started third grade here. And we had uniforms for PE. I don't know if you had a uniform for PE with like the logo. And on PE days, you had to go wear, you know, your your PE uniform and then change into your. Have you seen Elite? No, no, it's a Spanish show on Netflix. But I'm telling you, they have the fancy uniforms. And, you know, when I moved to America and I had to use these uniforms, I wanted my plaid dress and skirt and vest I was like what is this you know they had they still had uniforms because we had the yeah. like polos and you it's know khaki pants and so I bland. felt fancier yes in my dress code and for some people it's like why do we have to wear uniforms I was like I like wearing uniforms you know what it's so funny that you say that because I remember my mom and I going to drop off my like my uncles because they were in high school when I was in, in elementary school or they might have been in middle school. And I remember that there were specific schools that depending on what grade you were in, they would wear a specific color of uniform. So like, if you were like a first year, it was like pink. Second year, it'd be blue. And so it depended on the year. And I just remember when I was little, I was like, I want to be all those colors. But I never got to be, I got, I got to wear khaki and like blue, blue. and maroon. Like that's not that wasn't fancy it wasn't fancy yeah but so you don't remember whether you I know that I was taught English at my school because it was a private school and they kind of teach you if I can sing the song that they taught me and the one that you know stuck in my head was like (laughs) 
pollito, chicken, gallina, oh hen, lápiz, pencil, y pluma, pen. Pantana, that's what my mom English. Yeah, and that's the only song when I moved to America. That was the only song I knew. So I don't even know how, if I was getting, you know, if I was learning English somewhere yeah. else. When I came, it was so hard to speak English. And third grade was like the hardest part of me. And that song, I don't know why. I need to look it up where it's from because that's every time I think about, you know, English, that's the song that comes to mind. That's how I learned English. I think it's from Tatiana. I'm not going to lie. I have I'm pretty sure that's where it comes from. Cepillin just yeah. died. Did you know that Cepillin died? Did he grow up with Cepillin? Yes, but I did not know that. Oh, I'm sorry. I think he died. I think he passed away like a couple of days ago. Well, we're going to have to look that up because otherwise we just killed a man. I'm so um, sorry. <laughs> but so I, so again, my boyfriend had asked me and I, I told him that the first memory that I have of speaking English, um, we were, I was in third grade and I remember, I think it might've been like my first day and the teacher, she was doing the thing where like they write a sentence on the board and you kind of have to figure out like what's missing. And I remember that the words that were trying to come out of my mouth were question mark. But for some reason I said quotation mark. And like, I remember being so embarrassed because it was like yeah. the first time I was trying to speak. It was the first time being in a classroom where I knew that all the kids spoke Spanish but I like, and I don't know why, I don't know if, if that was like, and that's the thing that I don't remember if I didn't know English or not, because I was never put in a class, you know, how like we have, um, I think they're called ELD or ESL. ELS. ESL. There we go. That sounds familiar. I was never put in, in those. And so my, I mean, now, you know, I had never thought about it. My assumption is that my English was good enough to not be put in those classes, but yeah, that was like my first experience in an all English classroom. And, I'm, and I was like, damn it. I said quotation marks. It was a question mark. That's what the sentence needed. Um, but yeah, so I assumed that I knew English. You know, I had never thought about that. I think about that all the time because I do remember, and I don't know why you don't remember a lot of things from your childhood. You know, like I, I want to remember a lot of things. Some people do, some people don't. I it's trauma, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> they say that it's trauma where you block out all those memories. But if I go back, you know, I just remember being in third grade. I had that year so vividly in my head, though, because that was the first year that I went to school. And when I was in school in Mexico, they took education very serious. It was like a mm-hmm. whole nother level coming from the educational system in Mexico to the educational system yeah. in America. And I know that in Mexico, I was like the top student. And literally when I said the top student, not to pride myself, I'm very humble to, you know, say that because they made it a big deal. I think when yeah. you're in the classroom in Mexico, they have your name in like the first, second, and third row. If you're first place, you're the number one student in the classroom. Yeah. And literally the standards of my household was I always had that first place it wasn't something that was demanded from me but that was just me and I don't remember being competitive like to this day I'm not competitive at all but it was just in my nature I was always like first place and I remember one time I dropped to third place and they have parent-teacher conferences people are there my mom was so mad why are you in third place? And I was like, mom, like I still made it to that, you know, like board I'm on the board. Like, why does it matter? But it was a big deal. And then coming to America, you know, being like you said, I'm telling myself I was smart. I hope I was because you know (laughs) they made it seem like I was coming into third grade. I couldn't speak English enough to hold a conversation with somebody else. And I was in Phoenix, Arizona. And yes, there was other, you know, kids with the same, language like Spanish but Mm -hmm. my teacher didn't speak Spanish she was a white teacher and she was so frustrated that she couldn't teach me and I would cry I remember crying a little third grader in a circle because you know they would put us on a circle and they would show the the cards it was like flashcards of like annunciation Mm -hmm. like oh ah e you know and you had they they showed the flashcard and you had to pronounce what the the words were and everybody was like in the chorus, you know, saying it. And I'm just like, I don't know this. And I would cry. And it was so embarrassing for me to not, you know, share that same knowledge with them coming from like, oh, you're so smart, but I couldn't do well yeah. in school. 
And that was the hardest part for me that I remember learning English. Eventually, at that end of the year, I got, you know, the awards for like most, what is it called? Most it achieving most student. Yeah, most improved by the end of third grade. They moved me, they moved me to a different teacher, actually, because that teacher that I first had, she couldn't, you know, do yeah. anything with me. So they moved me with another teacher who was more patient. She took her time to teach me how to read. And she was so patient with me to the point where she would spend our, her lunch reading with me. That's Aww. why I made it to the end of the year with those awards and with those accomplishments and being able to speak English because she took the time. And I remember her to this day, if Miss Eldrady is out there, you know, somewhere in the world, <laughs> I am so thankful to her. And I do remember her because she taught me English and she helped me be confident in what I was saying. And, you know, it's, it's so, it's so funny, the experiences that our parents teach us, because I was the same way, like my mom has pictures of, and I know that like here in the U.S., it's, it's, they don't really do a lot of the stuff and traditions and customs mm-hmm. that we have in Mexico, but my mom has a picture where I was handed the flag at like, yeah, <laughs> when I, was, uh, I think it, it was, was like a huge deal. It was a huge deal. And like my mom and I laughed because looking back, like if you got the flag, like you were it like, oh my God. Do you have I'm, that picture? Yes, I have I my picture. I will share it. I yes. will share it. We can, you know, yeah. And it's like, everyone wanted to be your friend because yeah. they knew that you were like top stuff. Yeah, <laughs> no, school. I get it. I um, get it. And you have to march and you have to carry yes. the flag. It's like and you have to do it at graduation and you have, to, you know, I don't know, bear flag bears. I don't remember the name of it in English. Yeah, I know what you mean, though. But you have to um, march and it's a whole deal. I have that picture where I'm yeah. going to look for it and then we're going to post it. I wonder if we're wearing the same socks because I know that me and all the girls behind me, we were all wearing the same socks and, and the same shoes and, I, and the yes, same hair. And my mom and I laughed always because my mom's like everyone had the same socks and I was like I know it's so it's such an odd thing yeah but you know when we came here my parents had the same expectations that your parents did my parents wanted me to be top of the class and like when we came here and I remember like the clear words of my dad telling me this you know and like some of the hardest days in high school he always said you know like we didn't come here for money like we didn't come here for anything else but for you and your brother to have a better life and that includes education. And so elementary school, you know, I loved it. I, I can't say that I struggled, you know, and, and I empathize with, with your struggles because a lot of kids go through that. Even kids, you know, all the way up to high school, there are kids who have to take classes for them to learn English because they struggle or they're barely coming to the States. But I remember my dad telling me that. And so from third grade on, like I was good at reading. I was good at math. My teachers were happy with me. Middle school, I went to school with a bunch of Mexicans. If anybody listening went to Maxwell Middle School, Tucson, Arizona, y'all know who this is and I love you guys. But it was like easy because it was like, it was all Mexicans. We would speak English in the classroom, Spanish outside and all of that stuff. And like, I was always at the top. One of my close friends, Louis and I, his name's not Louis. His name is Luis, but we call him Louis. Louis and I, we wanted to be each other. Like we wanted to make sure that our grades, you know, were, we're up against each other and everything was so comfortable because we were both Mexican because we spoke Spanish, but then high school, that is where I really struggled because the school that I went to wasn't a private school, but you had to take a test to get in. So it's, it was like the, you know, like SATs of middle school. Was it a college prep school? Yes. Uh, It is a public school, you know, because as long as you pass a test, you can get in, but but you had to take the test. And what I didn't realize was that the school that I was in and the position that I was in when I passed the test is that I was one of the lucky few that did pass it from the school that I was in. Only three kids passed it and almost like a hundred of us took it. Did they was, force you to take it? Like everyone has to, or you choose to take it? We choose to. And I remember my counselor at the time, which I've gotten very lucky with the people in my life, she came and she's like, I really think that you should do it. She's like, I really think. And I remember telling my mom, I was like, mom, I want to do it. I want to see if I get in. So I took, I take the test. I got in. Lewis got in. Thank God. Cause otherwise I don't know where I would be without him. And, um, and another girl got in and then we went to this high school 
And when I tell you that I cried every day the first week, oh, I cried every day the first week because now it wasn't, I wasn't at the top. I was never at the top. I forgot what ACE looked like. I like, oh my God, if my dad thought, like my dad, and, I always, and I've always told this to my mom, my dad used to think that bees were basically pregnant Fs. Like, I'm pretty sure that that's how my dad sees them. Like bees are just pregnant Fs. <laughs> and so um, when I went to high school, I couldn't even get bees because we were taking honors classes. We were yeah. taking AP classes. We had no other choice but that. And so in high school, I was a minority. It was the first time that I really saw myself as a minority because it was everyone else was like white. There was maybe like a couple black kids, very, very few Mexican kids. And so to, to go into a place where I no longer knew people because it was like I had to take the bus every day and it was about a two hour bus ride because um, I had to take the city bus to go into a new place where Spanish was not spoken to during lunch to where I couldn't the people couldn't relate to the same things that I was going through and to know that these kids had gone to schools that prepped them so that they were above the rest was really hard and so my my counselor told my parents that I graduated she's like de pansaso but she graduated and I was like, whoo, barely wow. did it, but I'm glad. And so it was really hard. Like school after elementary school, school after middle school was like really hard because it definitely like rocked my world of what I really knew to be normal. And so I think those four years, which is like when everything with DACA happened. Yeah. That's when everything it, became, you know, relevant to us that first of all, a lot of people you know, who are dreamers, that's when they first found out they yeah. were undocumented. You know, we were brought up in America since we were kids, you know, similarly, like any American child would grow up in America in the same schools, in the same classrooms. And up until you're applying for college, you realize you're different up until yeah. you don't have a social security number. And you're asking, you know, your mom, Hey mom, where do I get this information? And you don't have it. And that's when it becomes yeah relevant to our lives right mm -hmm. did a lot of people know that you were undocumented while you were in high school um well no I I want to say that that's not the word that we probably used back then I want to say that you know back then which it makes me sound really old but god it's almost been like 10 years since we graduated high school yeah. uh it was like, I think all we had to say was I'm from Mexico. You didn't have to say like, Hey, you know, like I'm undocumented. My parents, like my, I wasn't born here. All you had to say was I'm from Mexico and people would be like, Oh yeah. Okay. I get it. You're not from here. Um, and so I got lucky. So if people have listened to Josh's episode by now, um, I got lucky because that's where I met Josh. Now, the funny thing is that Josh, Josh's mom, is I believe she's from the town that I'm that I'm from now Josh and I had never met till high school but we had a lot of those similarities so I was like oh I know somebody else who's from Mexico Louis was there with me so that was not really hard and Louis already kind of had an idea you know we had already talked about it they're they're basically like my older brothers and then everybody in our friend group because we, we are all from the same friend group uh, they knew that I wasn't from there but like you said, it wasn't until like junior year, senior year that we kind of started having those conversations of like, damn, like, what are we going to do? You know, like what were Josh and I going to do for school? Because we didn't know where we were going to go. And yeah, I, I think that that was like one of, that was like one of the first times where it felt like my future was being robbed. But it, it was it was like an odd feeling because I didn't know what that, that future looked like. It was like the first time that I knew that I had to go. I had to take the next step in my life, but I didn't know what that looked like because I had never experienced it. And my parents had never experienced it. You're seeing everyone around you experiencing what you're supposed to be experiencing. Yeah. Everyone around you is applying for college. Everyone around you is looking at schools. And for the longest time, I'm just the same way. What mm -hmm. am I going to do? And 
you know, the next step was, well, I can work in the same job that my mom works because, you know, I can do that, but it's a trade job. I, once you're in a situation where you work so hard to understand that your future has much more potential and that you can go to college, you can get an education, you can get a degree and become a professional. You want it. At that point, I'm thinking of my future. I'm thinking, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. To be a doctor, you have to go to college. And Mm -hmm. it becomes relevant at that point where, how am I going to do that? If I don't have documentation or a legal status, I want to ask you because I considered being a teacher and that's Uh being on DACA. I consider being a teacher, but then there was always that doubt of you have to pass state certifications. You have to pass different criteria that I don't know if DACA is going to allow me to be a teacher. Yeah. So um, my story with teaching is kind of odd, but I'm a high school teacher. I teach freshmen. It's my second year teaching. And I actually came in as a substitute teacher. Oh, so I was a long-term sub. That's, that's how they got me in my first year. So I wasn't paid like a teacher. It wasn't really an issue of my status. Again, I don't know if that's because I got lucky in the district that I'm in that, you know, it is a Hispanic area and, and there's, there's all of the families are Hispanic, you know, and, and I think that that's kind of like the beautiful thing about it, that I kind of went back to teach in a place where I really did feel comfortable. Um, and so I've never really had an issue with that. If, if you did want to go back to teaching, what I would say is, and if there are any other potential teachers listening, is that go to a place that makes you feel comfortable. You know, like I learned that when teachers say it's not about the money, they mean it. You know, like you have to teach in a place that you're comfortable, in a place that you are supported, in a place that you really feel valued and that you really value what you're doing for these kids because I have met so many kids with my similar story in my classrooms. I've met kids whose parents, you know, they moved here just, just like my parents to give them a better future. And so I think that that's the only thing, like it's not really an issue because of DACA, but I think that DACA definitely humbles you in a classroom because you're like, dang, like I was there one day. Exactly. Like this might have been, we said what, almost nine years ago, but the stories are just repeating themselves in different kids. And, and I think that that's kind of like what got me after like the few, the first few months that like, there are kids who are now unfortunately in, in a, in a worse spot, I would say than we were because their parents either don't know about DACA, they can't afford it, or they're just like, unaware that that it's even a possibility for them and there's still that fear that even with DACA and I remember when it became you know a thing DACA is deferred action for childhood arrivals and when it was introduced by President Obama there was that fear of we know about it but can we trust the government to you know give our information to the government disclose everything about our lives from when we were born to who's my parents who everything about us we're giving to them to the government and at one point yes they're giving us this you know protection they're giving us a war permit they're giving us a driver's license but at what cost because down the road things can change and all of a sudden it gets taken away they have all your information and that's the fear of like I'm going to be the first one deported because they have everything about me we probably have a chip and we don't know (laughs) it you know like I don't know, but it's scary. And I know that we went through that fear back mm-hmm. in 2000. Well, 2020. I mean, the past four years have kind of been, you know, in fear, but yeah, yes. I'm probably since like 2016. Um, and I think in, in Arizona, which I think, you know, again, out of any state, my parents had to choose a dedicated red state. Um, it, it was scary. Like I remember SB 1070. Uh, that one was harsh because it, and, and it's, it's a really hard fear to explain to people, you know, it's like going back to the application, like people don't understand the questions that they ask us. Have you ever killed anybody? Have you ever raped anybody? Have you ever used drugs? And, you know, as someone filling in an application, you're like, 
do you want to label me as a criminal? Like from right off the bat, they ask us, when was the last time that we like left the US? When's the last time that you came in? And all of these questions for some people, you're like, I don't even remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. How the hell am I supposed to remember this? Um, and you have and to so- be consistent. Your story has to be consistent yes. from the minute you apply, you the have first to time. save. I have drawers of information from yeah. the first application up until the latest one where your information needs to be consistent. If we have ever the opportunity to say something about ourselves, we have it memorized to the point where I can yeah. tell you when we came to the United States, the dates exactly. And not because I remember it, but because I'm forced to write it down every two years. Exactly. And you, and you know what? It's funny that you say that you remember because, you know, talking about that fear that we've developed, talk about trauma, you know, like trauma since we were eight. Oh my God. But I remember my mom, when we first moved here, she had me memorize our address in Mexico. She had me memorize my grandparents' numbers. She had me memorize, uh, what else was it? It was like my grandparents' phone numbers, any information that like really needed. And it, it's things that parents do like that. You know, that when I was little, like mom would be like, what's our address like randomly in the car and I could tell her but that was for her to make sure that if we ever got stopped and they they asked me I wouldn't make a mistake and say here and just like the the fear that is instilled in us to make sure that we make it through it's like a little insane because they're our parents are not doing this on purpose like they're doing it for our safety but I remember when uh SB 1070 happened Like my parents even had a fear of like going out to the grocery store. And that is just so insane to me, like looking back, because I remember that any time that a police car would be behind us, oh, it was like, it was like we were near death. And and it happens to me still, like, I'm pretty sure that that's where it comes from. Like if a cop is behind me, I get scared. I panic. I panic. panic. And I'm like... And like my boyfriend's like, you have your ID, but it's like, it's that fear that they could potentially ask, where are you from? I can't, I'm not going to say I'm from Tucson. Like, yeah, I was raised in Tucson, but legally on paper, that's not where I'm from. And my parents, oh, maybe it was like a couple, I want to say it was about a month ago. My boyfriend and I were home. We were getting ready to go see them. I want to say it was like New Year's or I can't remember what day it was. And we were getting ready and my brother, my brother texted me and all he said was, Hey, we got stopped. And I, Oh my God, even right now, like I felt my heart drop. Like I remember calling my brother and I was like, Hey, like, where are you? Like what happened? And like all the thoughts that go through your head when that is happening. Like, I want to say that it was my mom's birthday. Because the first thought that went through my head is like, where am I going to see my mom tonight? You know, like not knowing, like, am I going to see her at the house? Am I going to see her somewhere else, um, like in jail? Which is obviously not a thought that you ever want to have. And I remember like my brother, he answered the phone, but he was not talking. And all I could hear was the cop speaking and my dad having to ask my brother, like, what is he saying? Because my parents never learned Spanish. I mean, they never learned English. And like, we don't hold that against them. You know, it's like, by the time that they came here, my mom was like, if I was eight, my mom was 28. My dad was 29. And I broke down in our bedroom. Like Christian had to take over the phone and he was like trying to just listen and like talk to my brother. And I felt like my whole life had like crumbled in a moment. And, and I think that that's what people miss. I, I think that that's what people don't understand because when, when their families leave the house, like if your family goes on a trip, which Lord knows that my parents have never been able to because of the, our situation, you know that they're going to come back. You know that they'll be back. In our situation, my parents driving to Phoenix, my parents going to the grocery store. It's like, you know, they're safe, but you always have that doubt of like, will they make it back? And obviously now as an adult, you know, it's, it's, it's a little less scary but even now just like anything anything like getting stopped by a cop like my dad crashed a few years ago it wasn't his fault but he crashed anyway and he had to go to court and I was not 
in Arizona. I was in New Mexico. And I remember my mom calling, called me and she said, she said, Hey, like, don't call your dad. He's with the cops. And it's like, how do you explain those feelings to other people? You know? And, and I know that people are like, yeah, like we understand, like you could lose your parents, but it's like, it's different. It's such a different feeling. It's, it's an indescribable fear that lives within us every single day. Yeah. And you have to be prepared for the worst case scenario at all times. And talking about the trauma, that's how we operate at this point in our lives. We don't operate in a way of like, everything's going to be okay with me losing my DACA, with me losing everything at this point, everyone tells me everything's going to be okay. And I'm just like, at my worst because I'm like, I don't, I've never, this is unknown territory for me. How do you know this is going to be okay? I don't know what's going to happen to me next. And that's why I'm saying a lot of people don't understand our fears and why we are the way we are in a sense of in preparing for something. I always think of what can go wrong instead of everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be right. I'm just like, I need to be prepared so that when this happens, I know what to do. And that's how we were primed from our childhood. Because if your parents went to this store they had you with the number of who to call, you know, a, mm-hmm. a lawyer. I don't know if, you know, you've had a lawyer, but, you know, they had uh, some friends or family to call in case something happened. Yeah. Um, emergency hotlines, you know, just in case so that we can operate. And I think that's how we operate now in our adult lives. And mm-hmm. that's hard because I can't just be positive about my future. I can't be positive about, you know, what's to come when I'm constantly fearing of the worst case scenario at all times. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's really difficult to deal with, to be like, 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 like I was saying earlier too, we know the next steps that should come in our lives, but sometimes it's really hard to figure out, can I take that step? And can I take it like everybody else does? You know, like, uh, like I told you earlier, Christian and I are moving. So in the first off in Hispanic families, living closest is a big deal you know like if you're not going to live in the same street you're at least living in the same city and Christian and I are moving to Connecticut so that's like a whole wide world away from my parents and it's for grad school and it's it's a very exciting time because like you know he's he's gonna go for his degree and you know at some point we're gonna be going to the same school I'm gonna go to a school in Connecticut as well and and we're hoping to that by the time that I'm done, I'll have two master's degrees. But even knowing that we move in July, That's which so na- soon. right now it's, it is very soon. Cause right now it's March. Our fear is how am I going to pay for it? Cause I got in, you know, like I'm in and, and that's the, that's the easy part. Get, well, I shouldn't say that, but getting in is like one step now paying for it. That's the other thing. And when people get into undergrad, you know, like I have a friend and again, I was lucky enough to know so many other people who had DACA because they allowed me to have these safe spaces to share my story with. But I had a really good friend, you know, from from middle school on that he got a $40,000 scholarship to the U of A. He found out that he was DACA, snatched it right out. And it's like... Exactly. And so it's, it's those things like, that's why I never applied to in-state schools. That's why I didn't stay in Arizona because I didn't feel safe. I didn't feel like I was going to be taken care of here. And so it's these small things that like, how, how do we move forward (laughs) in the world with all of these things in our way? And how, and how do people say, you know, it's going to be okay. You're going to be fine when they don't, they just don't see the extra steps and the extra stops that we have to take to get to where they're at, which at the same time, I think it definitely makes us very resilient. And I think that that's one of the things that, you know, like a lot of people when I was in college and and I would go and speak about DACA and stuff, they'd always be like, Oh my God, you know, like, I'm so sorry for you for like what you've gone through, but it's like, no, like, don't feel sorry for me. It made me like it, who I am right now. Exactly. Like it's made me so resilient and so hardworking for where I want to be and where I'm going. 
but there's no need to feel sorry. Is our story sad? Yes. Do our stories sometimes make people realize like how much struggle we go through? Yes. But these are the same struggles that keep us moving forward. Like these are, these are our stories as to why we are able to not give up regardless of what happens around us. And, you know, that's the one thing I'm thankful for. And like I said, when I brought you on, on this episode, it was about sharing your DACA success story. And Mm -hmm. I labeled it that way, because like you said, when we're coming out into this platform, we're not asking for people to pity us to say, oh, I'm so sorry for you. Because that's not what we want. We want understanding to create Mm -hmm. impact to say, wow, you went through all that much you're still at it. We are still here. We're fighting for our future while everything else is against us. While, you know, the rhetoric out there is, you know, those illegals and those, you know, they criminalize us and they call us all these things. But at the end of the day, we are still here and we still want to be here. That's crazy. I found that really crazy that despite everything else going on in the world, I still want to be here because this is what I know. This is my home. And the scary part for me now is thinking, what if I have to go back to Mexico? Am I going to be able to survive over there? It's a world unknown. (laughs) I've already made myself comfortable here. I, I know, you know, the language, I know the culture, I know the holidays, I know the pledge of allegiance. When I go Mm -hmm. back to Mexico, I don't know anything about that culture and maybe some of it because of course I'm still Mexican and of course I still, you know, speak Spanish and I know the food and, but going into and immersing myself into that culture, it's going to be so different. So that is now a fear also that at the same time we're fighting to be in this country, we can get kicked out at any moment. Am Mm -hmm. I going to be able to survive? And I know in myself, yes, I am going to survive, but it's going to be hard and I don't want to leave because I like it here. And I like my life here. And we've worked so hard to get good grades. You've mentioned we've worked so hard Mm -hmm. to be the best student to get those awards and get those achievements to be a law abiding citizen. Like, yeah, we are not criminals. We have to go through extensive background checks. And when I say extensive, we have to go get fingerprinted every two years. Yeah. Tell me what American gets fingerprinted every two years. I don't even think the president gets fingerprinted. I doubt he gets fingerprinted when he goes into the White House and he holds office. Like, I remember the first time I ever went to get my fingerprints done. I was like, I was like, I've seen this on TV and it doesn't end well after they're done. Like they legit (laughs) fingerprinting criminals. And it's, it's such an odd feeling because they're like, you're like, why do you need to do this every two years? Yeah. <laughs> you have like, my fingerprints won't change. Like they're the same fingerprints. Yeah. It's my finger. But, and again, they're doing extensive background checks. Even a traffic ticket can, you know, impact mm-hmm. your application, whether it gets denied or approved by the time you renew. And like I said, we fear even getting stopped by a cop for a regular yeah. traffic stop. And that is what we want people to understand. And like I said, not to feel sorry for us, but to say, we need to do something. We can do better than that. So that when the next time you and I are driving out in the street, because we are, like you said, abiding citizens, we feel safe in our own community. We feel safe in our own home. And like right now, we are part of, you know, this country. You and I are contributing as much as the next person is we're working, you're a teacher, you're in a classroom as an essential worker right now during this pandemic. And we are, you know, immersed so much into this country that going back to our home, and Mm -hmm. I say that quote unquote, yeah, is a big fear. It is. And, you know, we always joke, like, of course, I would want to go back. That's, that's where all my family is. That's where my grandma and, and my grandpa's and everybody is but for example for me and and now it's I get to compare my life to my brothers because growing up my brother he started learning English from when he was little because he got to go to school he he has lived a a full American life 
in an undocumented body, basically, you know? Um, and on my end, I got to live in Mexico. Then we moved here and I learned how to basically change myself to fit in to fit here. In. Yeah. And now that we've both grown up and he's applying for his DAC and everything, we kind of have seen a lot of like differences in how we grew up, for example, like for him being in this country. And, and I don't mean this in, in a bad way, but being in, in this country, it's all he knows and he accepts it as it comes. So any struggle, he's like, I'm here. It's going to happen. I got to deal with it. And for me, I'm like, no, like you have to get past it. Like find a way to fix it. Don't just settle for it. And so knowing like even how different in families, you know, like he's my sibling, we're six years apart. It's, it's such an odd life that we've lived that now that he's growing up, just even me having DACA and him not being able to get it yet, he notices the difference that are happening over one card. And I think that that has like, that has really hit my family hard because for me, by, by the time that I went to college, I could already go. I could have a job. I, could, I was basically taking care of myself. Boom. I was doing it at the age of, I, what, what was I like, 16, 17? Yeah. I already knew what I wanted for my life. My brother, he's turning 19 this year. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's getting so old. So am I. Um, <laughs> and, you know, he's like, I want to work. Like, I want to do all of these things. He's currently in college, but obviously, you know, like, he has to go through other ways. And I think a couple of years ago, like, he was, he was getting very, like, sad and, and angry that he couldn't have the liberties that I have. And it kind of brought me back to being like, if it wasn't for this, if it wasn't for this small opportunity, I wouldn't be where I'm at. Yeah. And so it's like, it's life-changing how much DACA has made for us or has given us. And yeah. that's just, you know, from nine years, you know, a nine yeah. year difference of having it versus not having it. And you're seeing that in your brother. I'm seeing that in my sister, you are talking and I'm just like, check marking everything we yeah. have in common because I have DACA. I've had DACA since I was 16. My sister, she came in, she was also two. I was seven. You were eight. I'm telling yeah. you, our stories are like <laughs> by the book. And my sister, you know, she thankfully got the same scholarship that I did, um, which is mm -hmm. a dream.us scholarship and is a scholarship for dreamers. And thankfully they extended it to all of those who fit the dreamer label, uh -huh. but not necessarily have DACA because, I, you know, I believe in 2017, Trump decided to end DACA. And that's yeah. when it was the hold on applications and you couldn't apply. Literally mm -hmm. her birthday was the 3rd of September and that law came in the 5th of September. So uh, two days apart from filing her application before it got taken away. And by those two days, she has gone through three years of struggling, of not having a status, of not having the same liberties that you and I share having DACA. And, you know, she is able to go to school. Thankfully, like I said, the scholarship is covering all the expenses of school. But at the same time, she has to do it so much differently than I did. Mm -hmm. And hopefully with this new bill that is introduced and with now, you know, DACA taking new applications, that can be a difference for her to finally come out and be free like you and I yeah. are. And still, yeah. you and I are still not free because, you know, things happen. I just, my DACA expired. I've been without it, waiting on it to be renewed. And right now I'm in the same place where she is. I can't it's, go anywhere. I can't do anything. It's, it's a hard place to come, to come back to. It's, it's a hard place to think of like my actual work permit card got stolen and the same thoughts went through my head. I was like, like, what's going to happen if I try to get a job? Like I can't. And I, and it's like, it's so odd because it's, it's a very, important ID that holds so much power to it that you know unfortunately you you you're basically just waiting for the new one it's it's not even like yours was revoked it's not like yours was they said you know denied you're just waiting hopefully for knock on wood because yes. I haven't gotten a response yet you know it's I sent in my paperwork I haven't heard anything back and 
you know, I've heard people say, oh, I waited so much, you know, time and it got rejected. Like it's still a big fear that I put in all the work and it can still come back denied for some reason. Yeah. You know, and it's the, the reasons why it could get denied are, are crazy. And, and, you know, if you're listening to this and you've never gone through the application process or you, you will never have to just look at the application (laughs) and just like, take a moment to step into our shoes and see if you could remember all of the information. And and I'm not saying this as a way of like, Oh, like look at us doing all of these things, but it's, it's a very not hard application. It's, it's just an odd application to fill out for, for you to say, Hey, can I work? Can I please have like, you have to write a paragraph. Uh, You do have to write, you have to write a paragraph about why you need your job. And it's like, it, and it, it's so funny because like, we know why we need a job. We need a job to support our families. We need a job to pay for school. I need a job to pay for gas and groceries and food and an apartment and a roof over my head. But we have to put all that in writing. And so like, imagine yourself if, if you're not undocumented, if, if you're legally here in the US or maybe, you know, you, you were legally here and thankfully you are, um, you don't have to go through a process. Like imagine that, imagine like being 16, like you and I were and, having to ask someone who is unknown because you will never meet the people who approve these and basically saying, Hey, can I please have a job? Can, can you please grant me the ability to work? And then, you know, like, it's funny because we, we wish for the, for the moment that they say yes. But then like one of the things that I always thought funny is that our card says not for re-entry. And so like in my head, I'm like, so you you don't want me to be here, but you also are telling me that I should not leave. So like, do you want me in here or do you want me out there? Because like out there, I know how bad things can be, but in here, things are also bad. So like, like what, what choice do I have? Like, this is weird. (laughs) It's confusing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so like now it's funny because now, you know, our friends will be like, well, let's go to Mexico. And I'm like, I can go, I I can't come back, but I can't come back. Like, (laughs) And that's the joke that I'm like, I can go, but I can't come back. So I'm sorry, I'm not going. Um, And And you have to make light of the situation. You have to be funny about it because it's really sad. (laughs) (laughs) Like what, like what else are we going to do? And it's, it's so crazy. Cause like, I, I remember the first time, because again, you know, like my entire life I spent in Tucson. We never got close to the border because border patrols. We never got any, we never, my, like my family and I, we've never taken a family trip because Same. you can't, you can't. Um, and so I remember the first time we went to visit Josh in El Paso. And I remember like seeing the border and seeing the other side. So and, close. And genuinely, actually, no, that was not the first time. The first time we went, we were visiting UTEP. Like the school took us to visit UTEP. And I like my high school and I remember seeing the other side and just genuinely feeling like, like, I wonder what it feels like to be on the other side. Looking this way. Yeah. You know, like, I wonder what it's like to just take a step on the other side and have everyone know your language and have everyone understand who you are. Because the joke, you know, and, and we all say this, like we are too white for Mexico and we are too Mexican for the U.S. And, and it is a joke and we probably say it more than we should, but that is the reality, you know? Like, I don't know if, if you, when you applied for grad school, you realize this or, or if you had to apply like this, but I had to apply like an international student. And I'm like, I don't even have an international address. Like, I have no idea what that life is like. Yeah. And it sometimes, it reminds you that you, no matter what, no matter how old you get, no matter how many achievements you make, no matter what you try to do in writing, on paper, we're still not from here. And it's, it's those moments where you're trying to move forward in life and then you're reminded of it that just make you think like, what should I be doing? You know, like I'm doing everything that an American would, so why am I in this spot? So why don't you it, acknowledge me? And it's not even us fighting for us. It's us fighting for other people to understand because yeah. I recognize, I see myself as American. 
if people ask me where I'm from, I'm going to say I'm from Arizona. I'm from Phoenix, Arizona, because that's what I know. I know I can tell you kind of give. Yeah. Yeah. I can tell you about the desert. I can tell you about the climate. I can tell you everything you need to know about Arizona's history. If I were to tell you I'm from Mexico and I can't tell you about my education, I can't tell you about, you know, my ancestry because I don't know. I can't talk about those things. I'm too American. Like you said, I know too much about America and we recognize that, but other people don't. And right now there's a big push for us to reach out to our congressmen. There's a big push for us to reach out to everyone that can vote because with this new bill, which is the U.S. Citizenship Act of 2021, and when this new bill was introduced, you know, it's going to be waiting for I don't know how long. You know, the DREAM yeah. Act was introduced years ago and it was never passed and different versions of the DREAM Act have been you know, introduced and not passed. And so this is now a new opportunity that for all of us with DACA, we can possibly get some permanent mm-hmm. status rather than just the temporary two years. And, you know, in the hopes that one day we can actually become citizens and actually call ourselves a full American. But, yeah. you know, there's a big push for us to share our stories. And that's one of the biggest reasons why we're here in this platform right now. What message do you have for another dreamer, for all of those listening to us that are in the same situations that probably check mark with us, all the similarities we had growing up. And, and like I said, maybe for different people, it was in a different way. But at the end of the day, we talked about the fear, we talked about the anxiety, we talked about the hopelessness of not knowing what our future holds. What message do you have for all of those dreamers out there listening to us today? Regardless of where you are or who's listening, whether they are uh, undocumented, they currently have DACA, or, you know, it's just someone supporting us. I hope that they all understand that regardless of our hardships, we are so resilient and so powerful that one day we'll make our mark. And even now in like the darkest times, because we And I mean, we all felt it differently, you know, the past four years, we got through that and we've definitely gotten through a lot harder stuff. And in that resiliency to not give up, to fight for our rights or, you know, what we deserve and and what we should be having, it's going to move us forward. You know, if, if you're someone who is afraid to share your story with other people, know that we can't change who we are at all. Even if one day we get to we get to say, yes, we are American on paper as well. It will not change who you, who you are and who you were before that. And so I, I just hope that when people listen, that again, they, they don't see us as sob stories or as like the picture for, for DACA as it being like paranoid and afraid, but that they really see us as people who are, who are coming and who are pushing to be better. And to do better for themselves, just, you know, like our parents wanted us to, because that's, that's all we can do that that's where we're still going. And so I really hope that people take that away. Sharing our stories and sharing, you know, everything that we've been through up until now. And hopefully, like I said, it can be better from here on, you know, Mm -hmm. with DACA being right now, still on after 10 years, almost 10 years after DACA being part of our lives for almost a decade, we have something that we can, you know, take and run with at this time. And that's not enough. It's not enough for us to just be complacent about having a two-year permit. We have to get some sort of reform. We have to have some sort of package where we are able to stay here permanently. And whether it's our choice to go back home or not, that's on me. Whether I want to go and stay over there, let that be my decision, but not your decision to kick me out. So yeah, thank you, Stephanie, so much for joining me. I am so happy to connect with you. And coming into this episode, I was really nervous because, you know, like I said, this is new to me and I didn't know who I was going to meet on the other side. Thankfully, it was a very familiar face and a very friendly personality and thank you so much like I said after today I have your number and 
I hope that we can stay connected. I hope that you do yes. share your pictures because I have I'm to share elementary school pictures. Yeah, I'm going to find my pictures holding that flag with my <laughs> uniform. And we are going to both post them on Instagram and share with our audience, you know, what we look like. And I'm so thankful to have you here. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your story. Like I said, it's very important for everyone out there listening to hear us, to know that we're here and to understand that we are here to stay, right?